So I read an article this past week where the author was discussing the number of decisions that we make uh, every day as human beings. And although this is difficult to quantify, this author pointed to research uh, that we make roughly 35,000 decisions every day. Now, if you assume seven, seven and a half hours of sleep, that's roughly 2,000 decisions per hour. I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that. I guess it depends upon your definition of a decision. However, I guess if you get granular enough, you could say that every moment we're making decisions. In the last 10 minutes, we sang two worship songs. If they have 100 words each, you decided each song to sing each word or to not sing that word, to take a breath instead. And so that would be 200 decisions over the last 10 minutes. Maybe it's down to each syllable we pronounce or do not pronounce. Maybe that's how they come to the conclusion that we make 2,000 decisions per hour. If that is the case, if we make all of those decisions, then most of our decisions fall into the category of inconsequential. Now, when you got up this morning and you ate breakfast, if you chose Lucky Charms over Frosted Flates, it's really not that big of a deal. Now, when you got out of bed, if you put your right foot on the floor first before your left foot, not that big of a deal. Whether you took a breath or you sang that word in the worship song, that's inconsequential. So most of our decisions in life are inconsequential. Then there's another category that we would say right decisions or sinful decisions. And even if you're not a church person, we could say either really good decisions or really bad decisions. So these are decisions that have the potential to really blow up our lives. Now, we make a super bad decision, and the consequences are just huge. Someone drinks too much, and they get behind the wheel of a car. Someone decides to steal from their company. A husband and father decides to leave his family. These are really big decisions, and the consequences are huge, and they affect our lives in a dramatic way, and they affect the lives of those around us in a dramatic way. And then there's another category that we would call wise decisions or foolish decisions. These are decisions that are not inconsequential, meaning they don't have any effect on our lives. And at the same time, they're not these massive, you know, life-changing, life-altering, just huge, disastrous decisions either. They're, they're somewhere in between. You know, we'd say, well, it's not exactly sinful, but maybe it's foolish, or, or maybe it's sin, but it's not one of these that's just going to blow up your life. Uh, you might have heard of the story that is somewhat famous now of Larry Walters, a.k.a. Lawn Chair Larry. Uh, Lawn Chair Larry, a number of years ago, purchased 43 weather balloons, and he filled them with helium, and he tied those balloons to a lawn chair. I mean, an old school aluminum arms and a waffle webbing lawn chair. Now, if you don't know this, depending on your weight, six or seven weather balloons filled with helium will lift you off the ground. Forty-three weather balloons filled with helium will take you to Jesus. <laughs> Which is what happened to lawn chair Larry. When the ropes were cut, Lawn Chair Larry went flying into the sky much faster than he anticipated, eventually reaching a height of 16,000 feet above the earth, which is three miles above the earth. 
This altitude was actually confirmed in a conversation between an airline pilot and the airline control tower. Here was the, the uh, transmission between the tower and the pilot. Tower, this is TWA 231, level at 16,000 feet. Uh, we have a man in a chair attached to balloons in our 10 o'clock position, range five miles. Now, for his flight, Lawn Chair Larry took several items with him, including a couple of sandwiches, a beer, a camera, and fortunately for him, a pellet gun. When he reached 16,000 feet, he knew that he was in trouble. The air was getting thin. He was running out of oxygen. He began to shoot the weather balloons, eventually descending until his homemade aircraft hit some power lines, got caught up in the power lines, where he was met by officials who promptly arrested Lawn Chair Larry. Now, even though he broke several FAA laws, I don't know that Lawn Chair Larry's actions were necessarily sinful, as much as they were foolish, just really foolish. This tends to be where we live most of the time. The inconsequential decisions we don't think about, we just do. The sinful decisions, those really big sinful decisions, hopefully that's not something we're faced with all the time. But every day we are faced with choosing between that which is wise and that which is foolish. And enough foolish decisions over time will eventually lead us to a place where we will wake up one day and we will say, how in the world did I get here? This is not the place that I wanted to end up in life. And as we look back over our life, we can say, oh, it was that decision and that not-so-good choice and that, and that really foolish decision and stacked one on top of another will end up in a place that we never intended to be. That's what we're talking about today as we continue our series on King David. Now, if you grew up in church, you know the story that David eventually makes in his life that we would put in the category of really sinful. He makes a really sinful decision that leads to another really sinful decision that just has disastrous consequences in his life. We're not there yet. That's later in the series. Today, what we're going to see is David making a series of really foolish decisions. Decisions that, while they're not disastrous immediately, they have that potential and they lead him to a place that he just doesn't want to go. Now, if you've been here with us so far in this series, David has been pretty much perfect. David, this young man, has made every decision, uh, the, the right decision every single time. He's almost been this larger-than-life kind of superhero. Well, today we'll see Superman actually getting a rip in his cape. Today, David seems a lot more like us than some individual that we just can't identify with. So if you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21. This is in your Old Testament. It's right after the book of Ruth, which is right after the bigger book of Judges. And just to set this passage up, in 1 Samuel 20, we see that King Saul, the first king of Israel, is trying to kill David. 
He is insanely jealous of David. He is trying to rid the earth of David. And so David flees from where King Saul was to a city called Nob, N-O-B. And Nob at that point is where the tabernacle was located. This was the central place of worship in Jewish life before the temple was built. So the tabernacle is located in Nob, and that's where David goes. We'll start with verse 1. It says, David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Now, Ahimelech was the grandson of Eli. Eli was the priest who anointed David as king, something we saw at the very beginning of this series. Ahimelech at this point was serving as the high priest at the tabernacle, and David's presence there caused him to be both confused and afraid. He was confused because David was alone. David, why are you by yourself? David at this point had served as a five-star general in the army. David was a household name in Israel. David should have been traveling with an entourage, but he was by himself. So he says, why are you alone? And Ahimelech trembled. He was afraid because word had gotten out that there was tension between Saul and David. And Ahimelech knew David being here could create trouble for me with Saul. And so he says to David, what's going on? Why are you here and why are you here alone? Verse 2, David answered Ahimelech the priest, The king sent me on a mission and said to me, No one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. Now at this point, things are getting a little bit sketchy. David here just lies. And he says, the reason I'm here is is because the king sent me on a super secret highly classified mission that nobody can know about. So you can't tell a soul that I'm here because, you know, this is like Mission Impossible, super, super secret, and that's why I'm here. And, oh, yeah, I've got some men. The reason I'm alone is I've got this whole army of men, and they're waiting for me at this, I don't know, certain place. I mean, David's just making it up as he goes along. Everything is a lie. Instead of saying to Ahimelech, look, Saul's trying to kill me. That's why I'm here. I've come to seek shelter. Instead of just being honest, he makes up this whole elaborate lie to Ahimelech. And then he asks for food, and here's the response. But the priest answered uh, David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. So the priest here lets David know that he does have food, but this food was used in the tabernacle. It was called the showbread, and it was replaced every Sabbath. It was on a certain table in a certain place in the tabernacle. And the priest here says, look, there is bread that has been recently replaced. So it was used, and we replaced it with new bread. 
you can have this old bread, but it's still consecrated bread. So you and your men can have it if you're ritually pure. Here's what David says. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us, as usual whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by the hot bread on the day it was taken away. So David here says, look, we're ritually pure, everything's fine. So the priest gives him the bread, but the interesting thing is, is David is all alone. There are no men with him. The whole thing was this, this lie. There's no men waiting on him in a certain place. Uh, I guess David got to eat it all himself, even though the text doesn't really tell us that. Okay, verse 7. Now, one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. So this verse is inserted in the story, even though it has nothing to do with the rest of the story, as a foreshadowing of what will come next week. If this were a movie, at this point, the camera would zoom in on Doeg the Edomite. This ominous music would begin to play. You would see Doeg with his eyes kind of squinted, looking at David, watching his every move. This sinister figure with, you know, a five o'clock shadow and looking fairly evil. And you would know this guy's up to something. Well, he was, and we'll see it next week. So you've got to come back next Sunday for the next episode of the life of David where Doeg the Edomite plays a big part. And then the story returns back to David in verse 8. David asked Ahimelech, Don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was urgent. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. So David here asks the priest for a sword or a spear, some kind of weapon. And then he says, because the king's mission was so urgent that I didn't even have time to grab a weapon. Uh, there are a lot of holes in the story here, David. You're telling me that King Saul sent you on a mission and it was so urgent that on the way out the door you couldn't grab a sword? I mean, they're all over the castle. Why, why couldn't you grab something, David? I mean, obviously the story's starting to unravel here and I'm sure that Ahimelech was getting a little suspicious, but he doesn't say anything. He just says, okay, yes, we've got a sword here, but it's a sword of Goliath the Philistine. It's really like something you would display in a museum because it was this famous battle and you killed Goliath whom no one else could defeat. And, you know, since you defeated this Philistine super soldier, we've got it here on display. When people come by, we can show them the sword. David says, no, I want it. It'll do. There's no sword like it. Let me take that sword with me. So he takes that weapon. And then verse 10. That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. So David here goes from making the foolish decision to lie to the high priest. 
to the even more foolish decision to go from Nob, where the tabernacle was located, to Gath, which was about 20 miles away and was in the heart of Philistine territory. And more than that, Gath was the hometown of Goliath, the Philistine giant that David had killed. I mean, why would David do this? Why would he leave Nob and go to a place where people would really hate him because he was not a Philistine, he was the enemy of the Philistines, he was Jewish, and he had killed one of their soldiers and the soldier whose hometown was Gath, and to make matters worth now, he's carrying the sword of their hero that he had killed. Why would David do this? The only logical explanation is that David thought, if I go to Gath, that's the one place on earth that Saul will not follow me. Saul will not chase me into Gath. I can go there and I'll be safe and maybe they won't recognize me. Maybe I can appear to just be some other traveler. You know, I can blend in. And so he goes there to that city, and he approaches the gates of the city. And that day, in ancient city, the, the gates to the city, the entrance to the city, is where the officials would gather. The government officials, including the king, would gather at the gates of the city. So David goes, and here's what happens. Verse 11, but the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David here thought he could go to Gath and somehow stay under the radar, but when he got there, he quickly realized it wasn't happening. I guess it's like Donald Trump going to China and thinking, well, maybe no one will recognize me here in China. Well, it's just not happening. You know, you're well known. David goes and the people there say, oh, we know this guy. This is David. He's a hero. He's the king of in waiting there in Israel. In fact, there's a song about David. And they quote this song the women sang back in 1 Samuel 18 when the troops were returning from battle and the women came out and they danced and they sang this song. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And immediately David is recognized. So when he realizes he's got this spotlight on him, here is what he does. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. So once again here, David resorts to deception. He just pretended that he wasn't in his right mind. He pretended to be insane. He pretended to be a madman in front of them. And he begins to make marks on the gates, on the doorposts of the gates, just random marks, almost like graffiti. And he lets drool run down his beard, which would make anyone, even in our day, appear to be insane. But in that day, 
A beard was an, import, uh, an important symbol of dignity for a man. And so to desecrate one's beard like that was a sign that someone was crazy. David puts on this show. And amazingly, it works. Verse 14. Achish said to his servants, Look at the man. He is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Now, this really isn't part of the sermon for today, but I just think the response of this king is hysterical. He says to his men, I already have enough crazy people living in my city. We are full up, and so we've reached our quota. You can't let another madman in until one of them dies or leaves because we have reached our maximum here. This sounds like a guy who had to deal with a lot of nuts in his city. And so this act of David basically convinces the king he's not David. He's just some madman who's trying to get into my city. So the great thing about this particular story is not only do we get to read about what David did, we can read his own reflections on the events of that day. If you've got a Bible, turn to Psalm 34. In Psalm 34, David reflects on what he did both at Nob and when he went to Gath. Now, Turn to that psalm. You'll see this title at the beginning. It says, Of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and he left. So if you read the title of the psalm there, you're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, somebody messed up. Somebody got something wrong because this says when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech. Abimelech wasn't that king's name. It was Achish. Moreover, Abimelech sounds like Ahimelech, who was the high priest at the tabernacle. So someone got the story confused, and they changed Ahimelech to Abimelech, but then they messed up on exactly who it was that David was acting insane in front of. And so you can read that and think something's not exactly right here until you do a word search on the word Abimelech, and you discover that that was the title used for Philistine kings like we would use the title Pharaoh or czar or president in our country. So that was the king's title, Abimelech, and Achish was his name. This was the psalm that David wrote after he appeared insane in front of the king. Now, the... uh, This particular text reflects on that, and specifically when we've made foolish decisions. It's a long psalm. We're not going to read the whole thing. But let me point out several passages and how it applies to us when we've made bad decisions. So when I've made a foolish decision, number one is to recognize my foolishness. Look down at verse 4. David wrote, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. So we don't get the full picture here of exactly when David's aha moment was. 
What we know is he left Gath, and in the next chapter we read that he went to a place called Adullam. There are all these caves at Adullam. Likely he found shelter there, found a hiding place, found a place to spend the night. And that night as he went to sleep, as he was drifting off to sleep, he began to reflect back on his day. And he thought, oh man, what have I done? I mean, I lied to the high priest, and then I went to, to Gath, of all places. I thought that I could find safety in this place where people hate God, the enemies of Israel. I thought I could go to Gath, and that's where I would be able to hide out. That's where I went for protection was Gath. And maybe it was that night, or maybe it was the next morning when he woke up, he realized, what have I done? And then he thought, you know what? This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his trouble. David here recognized his foolishness. You see, all of us will make foolish decisions. Making a foolish decision is called being human. It doesn't make you a fool. Only You're only a fool if you continue to make the same foolish decisions. If you don't recognize what you've done. You may have seen the title of this message. is called Don't Fix Stupid with Stupid. Uh, I got that title from a devotional by Max Lucado. Uh, here's some of what he wrote in that devotional. He said, you don't fix a struggling marriage with an affair. A drug problem with more drugs. You don't fix stupid with stupid. Do what pleases God. Turbulent times will tempt you to forget Him. Shortcuts will lure you. Don't be foolish and don't be naive. Do what pleases God. Nothing more, nothing less. Let me phrase this very simply. If you're making foolish decisions, stop it. If you're going down a bad path, turn around. Don't keep making the same decisions over and over. When you make a dumb decision, the last thing you want to do is stack another dumb one on top of that and another dumb one on top of that, thinking that somehow one dumb decision after another will fix the first one that you made. The beginning of wisdom is recognizing when we've made a foolish decision. But it can't end there. The second step is remember God's goodness. Look at verse 7. Here's what David wrote. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you, you, you his holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. David here understood that God had been incredibly gracious to him. That even in his foolishness, God showed him grace. David could have ended up as a prisoner in Gath. David could have ended up dead. But God protected him even when he made those foolish decisions. I don't know about you, but I know in my own life, there have been so many times that I have made incredibly foolish decisions only to look back and say, thank you, God, that you did not allow me to feel the full weight of the consequences that I should have felt for that decision. According to the laws of nature, uh, 
That decision should have been so much worse than it was. God, thank you for your grace on my life, that you were that gracious to me. And and then there comes this point that I wake up and I realize just how good God is. That every rule that we have in Scripture, every command, every teaching in the Bible comes from the heart of a good, good father who loves us so much and says, hey, I want you to live according to this, not to steal your fun, not to restrict you in any way, but because I love you. And I want to protect you from going down that path where one day you will look back and think, oh, I wish I had not. Oh, I wish I had. I wish I was not in this place now. If you're a parent in here, you get this. You understand this so well. You set up rules in your household for a reason. It's because you love your children. And you say, here's the line in the driveway. You cannot go past this line. Oh, you're just trying to steal my fun. No, I'm trying to protect you from cars coming down the street. Don't text and drive. You can't text and drive. I don't want to find out that you're texting and driving. Why are you doing that? You're stealing my fun. No, I love you and I'm trying to protect you. No, you can't have a cell phone. Why not? Because you're seven years old. Seven-year-olds don't get cell phones. I'm trying to protect you from that. You've got to go to school. You've got to brush your teeth. You've got to be in by this time. Why do I have to be in by this time? That doesn't seem fair. You're trying to steal my fun. No, nothing good happens after this time. And I want to keep that not anything good from happening to you. You've got to go to school. You've got to go to the doctor. You've got to do all of these things. Why? Why do you have so many rules, mom and dad? Because I love you. I love you so much. I know this is true in my life. We've got four kids. We've got lots of rules in our house. Why? Because I love them. I would stand in front of a bus for them. I love them that much. And if that kind of love can come from me, a sinful, flawed human being, how much more perfect and good are the rules that an all-loving, all-knowing, perfect creator has given to us? Every command comes from the heart of a loving, gracious father who says, I want to protect you from those sinful and foolish decisions. And finally, the last thing is this. When I've made a foolish decision, recommit to God's ways. Look at verse 12. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. It's interesting that David wrote these words in the aftermath of what happened at Nob and in Gath. He said, if you want to see good days, if you want a long life, then keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. David, you just lied all over the place. You lied to the high priest, and you know lying to a man of God, that's really bad. And then you put on this whole act there in Gath. I mean, the whole performance was a lie. David, you're such a hypocrite. You're telling me to keep my lips from lies, and yet you spent all day, you spent several days doing nothing but lying. David, how can you say that? And David's response would be, because I've learned. I've learned my lesson. 
I almost ended up in a really bad place. And I've learned that it's so much better to be honest and to trust God for the results. There may be some of you in here, in here today, and right now you are struggling with some decisions. Not intellectually, you know what is right and what is wrong, what is sinful and what is not. The struggle is in your flesh. You want to do what you want to do. And I get that. There's so many times that we want to go in a certain direction and we want to make certain choices. We don't care what God or anybody else says. We just really want it. Here's what you need to keep in mind. God says no, not to steal your fun, not to take your joy, not to withhold any pleasure from you, but because he loves you. And he wants to protect you from ending up in a place where you have all kinds of regrets. When that temptation comes, when those desires are welling up within you, remember that God's laws come from the heart of a good, good father who loves you so much and wants to keep you from harm.